good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Town. Try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in our virtual studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We're your hosts, Ron Beard and Liz Graves, and Liz is on maternity leave. Congratulations, Liz. We hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk to the towns. A reminder that we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, when we encounter policies in our world that seem wrong, either because they harm people or the earth, many of us are moved to work for change. Sometimes that change is accomplished by building relationships with decision makers and using the arts of persuasion. Sometimes change happens when nonviolent direct action confronts those with power and stirs the public as a result of media attention. So today, this afternoon, we're so delighted to have two guests in our our virtual studio who can help us with the question of advocacy and nonviolent direct action. And uh, we're glad to have George Leakey with us. George is the author most recently of Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice, published by Seven Stories Press in 2022. And he's joined by Sue Inches, um, who is uh, author of Advocating for the Environment, North Atlantic Books, 2021. Um, George and Sue, welcome to Talk of the Town. So glad you could be here. Thanks for inviting me. And then I'm glad to be here, too. Well, let's start with with uh, um, some background from each of you. Uh, George, you've had a fascinating career over many years. Give us the thumbnail sketch, the back of the the back of the book sketch, if you would. <laughs> well, uh, we we called the book "Dancing with History" because uh, it, I, I'm very tuned into history. It was one of my favorite subjects as a boy in high school, and it, it's just the the whole idea of paying attention to what's going on in the larger world, and then figuring out a way to dance with it. That really uh, has always appealed to me since I was a youngster. So even at age twelve, for example, I preached in my church. I was given the pulpit one Sunday to try try out being a child preacher. And I preached that there should be racial equality. So mm-hmm. it's just been since boyhood that I felt some obligation to try to figure out what my stance is or what my dance is <laughs> with regard to what's coming up historically. Mm-hmm. And that's that's made for a life of wonder, really. And, and I, I'm just so grateful that that happened to be my primary interest. Great. Well, we'll talk more about um, your um, work in in a few minutes. Uh, Sue Inches, you had positions within the state of Maine, um, both with the Department of Marine Resources and the State Planning Office. Give us your thumbnail sketch of, of how you got to this work. So I have always um, cared deeply about the environment. I mean, even as a high school student, I was head of the uh, school's ecology club and uh, wanted to see, you know, a clean and healthy earth. And um, and that that interest and that caring really went to the next level uh, when I took a year between uh, Colby College and, and College of the Atlantic and went out west and did some planting of trees where clear cuts had been made uh, on federal land. 
And what I saw there, um, and I was completely naive, I had no idea about forestry or how that was done at all. But what I was seeing out there was that the, the, the forest was clear cut and then the slash was burned. And then uh, basically Agent Orange, uh, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T chemicals were sprayed uh, on the patch uh, and then it was replanted. And so what I was seeing was uh, a dead landscape and then, of course, it was the rainy season. It rains for six months uh, out on the Pacific Northwest. And all the soil, because there was no plants, was running down the sides of the mountains into the river and out to sea with all these toxic chemicals in it. And I didn't, as I say, know anything about forestry, but I could, I could look at that and say, there's got to be a, a better way. I mean, this is absolute destruction. And so that really changed uh, or, or deepened, I guess, an interest that was already there. And after a year of that work, uh, I came back to Maine and enrolled at College of the Atlantic uh, as a student in human ecology. So that was a sort of a, a moving experience. And ever since then, I have really been looking for um, how do we treat each other and treat the earth in a better way? Because the path that we're on is not a sustainable one, um, but, but there are alternatives. And I'm always looking for that alternative. And I'm always trying to find where are the positive solutions and what are the things we agree on? Because there's an awful lot of emphasis right now on what we don't agree on. And I think uh, really we need to get back to the things we all want, you know, a good future for our children. We all want uh, a way to make a decent living. I mean, there's a lot of things we agree on. And so I'm really working now to try to develop and, and put forward solutions. Well, George, you grew up in a working class um, family. Um, many of in your family were miners, Pennsylvania. And, and reading your book, that uh, working class ethos um, comes through so many times. Tell us a little bit about um, how you see that working class background kind of coming forth in, in your work and life. Well, even though I was attracted to ideas and uh, concepts, my dad kept asking, what's practical here? How do we get something done? And that was a wonderful kind of dialogue that was going on for me as a boy. Oh, well, it sounds like if I can't make something practical, then <laughs> what good am I? Because my dad says, let's get practical here. And my mom, of course, was a very practical person, although she wasn't so much the arguer as my dad was. But it was a, it was a great background for me because... I could have gone into, since I was very interested in ideas and you know, I went to graduate school and got into teaching in college, university and so on, it would have been easy for me to just be endlessly uh, buzzing with ideas. And instead, I got to be very much an activist because of that emphasis of my dad on what's practical here. And that that notion that you started out and and work on your PhD in sociology, and then you discovered that what you were more interested in was how sociology played out in, in, in life, not becoming an academic, but actually putting sociology to work. <laughs> That's right. That became the measure. That became the measure of my life. How can I make something practical? Which doesn't mean that I didn't get fascinated with theory and sometimes publish on that, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the dominant thing. The dominant thing was, let's get practical here. And I think that's so basically working class, you know, that's a very much a strength of working class culture. So um, my understanding from your um, book, which is um, Dancing with History, uh, you were first arrested following a sit-in in 1963 in support of equality in schools and hiring practices in Chester, 
uh, Pennsylvania. You spent the next summer uh, basically using a, a training manual that you and others had developed, counseling those who would go down to Mississippi and participate in civil rights marches and direct action. All of your writing since those days seems to stem both from that intellectual curiosity and from the experience of putting yourself out there. Talk a little bit about that that intersection as you've, you've come to understand it in your life. Well, it meant a lot of collision with conventional thinking that was was going on at that time. That is, there's been a very strong bias in American culture, and not just our country, in most countries' cultures, toward violence as the way to get things done. Violence is the way to get things practical, right? And that question, therefore, was up for the civil rights movement as well. And there were people, dissidents, you know, there was Dr. King and the mainstream of the civil rights movement uh, believing nonviolence could do the job. But then there were always others who said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if there's not violence that we're engaging in, then how can we be practical? So that became one of the drivers of my intellectual interest as well as practicing, practicing nonviolence again and again, even when knives were pulled on me, even when I was beaten up, beaten by police or beaten up by, uh, you know, bystanders. Um, it was always, how can we use nonviolence in a practical way? Uh, because I wanted to be on that frontier of knowledge rather than lapse back into the conventional American assumption that when we get serious about power, then we have to, you know, pull out the weapons and start killing somebody. Mm. And is that just a reflection of who writes history? Is that we come to understand our history as as violent versus collaborative or cooperative? Very much so. I was usually influenced by a guy named Gene Sharp, who became the founder of the modern discipline, academic discipline of studying nonviolence. And he did research on the on the nonviolence that it was in the, embedded in the American Revolution, and especially was the predominant impulse before we, uh, 1776, before we actually got into the the uh, you know the the confrontations with the British military. And he found that a great deal of the muscle that came from the colonists that enabled us to become independent from Britain w was actually nonviolent. It was boycotts boycotts of tea, boycotts of other things, uh, struggles of various kinds. At one point, there was a governor who was, the governor of Virginia was only in control of his own house, not not of the colony, because so many people were nonviolently non-cooperating with him. So Gene uh, took, took, uh, was a model for me of taking one example that has, uh, has, uh, in some ways set the temperature for our country of, hey, when you have a problem, you know, reach for a gun uh, and saying that this is illusory, actually. There's far, far, far more history than anybody wants to admit in our country of nonviolent struggle. And we ought to be going for that and figure out how to make it adaptable and, and necessary and good for today. So you mentioned your epiphany um, out there in the in the Northwest, um, and your story reminded me of of the Vietnam phrase that we have to destroy this community in order to save it. Exactly <laughs> that exactly. that notion that we we have to start with bare earth that we've created and then build something rather than nurture what nature is already wanting to to do. Tell us a little bit more about um, how you kind of in, involved those kinds of ideas in your work, perhaps with the state planning office or the Department of Marine Resources. And that was a, a, a career that said, how do we find common ground? That's exactly right. And so if you look back at that example of forestry that I gave, in a way, it's an authoritarian model of 
forestry, right? It's it's in fact actually the 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 theory at the time was called free to grow. And the 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 concept was you 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 bear the ground and then you plunk in a new little seedling and it's going to grow. Well, what we've learned since then is that forests are entirely living ecosystems. And if you plunk down a new seedling with nothing on the ground, it doesn't have the nutrients and the support that it needs from the other plants, the other trees, the fungi, and all of that. So um, it's actually a really direct example of what we also need to do um, in our communities. It's not a question of the decision makers are kind of up, up high and we're all below, but it's a question of how do we build a community of relationships that will lead us in the right directions. And so um, I was really fortunate. I, I uh, was hired by the Department of Marine Resources, not knowing anything about fisheries and uh, not knowing anything about, in fact, the question on my mind, I remember when I accepted the job was, well, so what do government um, employees actually do all day? I, I really didn't know <laughs> the answer to that. Well, it turned out the reason I was hired for this position was because the agency saw me as a person who had no stake. Basically, I wasn't a fisherman or I wasn't a seafood processor. Or I wasn't um, I wasn't coming from a, an agenda. I was really there because I wanted to help and I wanted to make things better. And so it turned out that there was a lot of, you know, citizen engagement processes I did. I mean, I met with fishing groups. I listened. I, you know, learned what it was they wanted and needed and then saw what pathways there might be to help them get what they wanted and needed. So it really became me sort of facilitating um, this community. And of course, Maine's fishing communities are very strong uh, communities. I mean, they're very together and they they know each other. And it was a really wonderful experience to get to know them um, and do what I could to help move things forward for them. So that was what that kind of work was. And then I later went to the state planning office, which was very similar in that there was a lot of, you know, uh, citizen engagement processes there. In fact, what we really were doing at state planning is we were creating custom public policy for Maine. So in other words, if there was a problem or an issue, we would meet with all the stakeholders and we would listen to them and we try to forge a solution uh, to whatever the problem was. And then uh, that solution might be legislation. There's something else I had never written a law in my life. But in that position, I actually wrote quite a few. And then uh, we would then proceed to lobby for those and pass the legislation. So really, it was about creating social change in a very practical kind of a way. And it all started with the stakeholders. Um, what are people concerned about? And is there a way we can address those concerns? It was very rewarding work, I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, what I was able to do there. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this afternoon, talking about advocacy and nonviolent direct action with our guest, George Lakey, author of Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice, published by Seven Stories Press in 2022, and Sue Inches, author of Advocating for the Environment, North Atlantic Books in 2021, and uh, so glad that they could be with us uh, this afternoon. This connection between advocacy and, and kind of persuasion that uh, Sue has mentioned by bringing people together and direct action. Um, George, how do you see that continuum? Because what you pointed out um, in your life and your book is sometimes we, we need to confront 
um, in in a way that's nonviolent, but still um, brings people to to uh, <laughs> to justice, so to speak. Well, as in many things uh, having to do with dancing, a lot of this has to do with timing. <laughs> and uh, the ideal timing in, in the relationship of advocacy and nonviolent action is to start with advocacy. Mm. Is to do what Sue just described in terms of getting the you know getting the parties together, trying to forge an agreement, seeing if 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 the uh, if the governing party isn't willing to dialogue, at least try to get the other actors together and see what you can get done, and then go to those in authority, even if they boycotted the process, go to them and see what you can get through negotiation and through advocacy. And Sue's an expert in that. The thing is that sometimes the answer is no, go away, <laughs> or we won't even open the door. We won't let you advocate. But if, usually there's some allowance, you know, for advocacy. And then there still can be a no, we prefer things the way they are. And or we prefer to impose this particular horrible policy on top of you, even though you don't like it. And at that point, it's great to know that there's a backup plan. The backup plan is nonviolent direct action that we, the people, act, and in case after case that I could describe, um, and we even have a database uh, at Swarthmore College while I was a professor there that created um, uh, examples, 1,400 examples from around the world, examples of when people said, well, okay, if you can't listen to us in our attempts to dialogue with you, then let's try the force, the power of nonviolent direct action and create a movement that makes so much trouble for you. What uh, Byron Rustin called, uh, I think, divine uh, trouble or, or uh, something like that. Well, <laughs> good, good, good trouble, certainly. Good that's trouble, that's what he called it. He called it yes. good trouble, right. Um, Byron, Byron mentored me, but I sometimes forget his phrase, good trouble. Make good trouble for them and in such a way that it becomes in their interest to give in and allow this thing, for example, racial integration, to happen, even though there was resistance by the authority to that idea earlier. Mm -hmm. So as you think about writing the manual for mm -hmm. direct action, what were some of the things that you tried, both from your experience and from your intellectual curiosity, to put into that manual? How do you prepare people to take direct action? Well, that certainly that early step of the negotiation and trying to get it negotiated, and and there's there's uh, as Sue knows in a, in a finer way than I do, subtleties about how to prepare people for negotiation so that they do put their best foot forward and so on. So there's a whole training dimension there which we can learn more about from Sue. But then also, if it comes to okay, then we're going to have to force this to happen through not the power of nonviolent direct action. Then there's a lot of training necessary because for one thing, you're going outside people's usual everyday activity. Right. And so people, there are going to be a lot of newbies stepping forward who say, hey, I haven't done this kind of thing before. I don't know the techniques and so on. What if we what if we break the law and we're arrested? What is that about? What is what is it like to be ushered into a jail cell and so on? Gets very scary. 
And training is a terrific way to prepare people for scary situations. As the military knows, they train people up the wazoo, right? (laughs) They know they're going to invite folks into unexpected situations and that it really helps to have the training. And so uh, that was a big part of our manual for direct action. My first publication uh, that I wrote with Marty Oppenheimer was to show how important training is to support people to be able to do what's scary but nevertheless to do it well and not allow their fear to overwhelm them so that they do some foolish stuff. Any particular stories that that you'd like to share uh, where you felt direct action moved the the needle, so to speak, made made some of the difference? Because you've had so many from the civil rights era to the Vietnam War to environmental justice. Um, Any particular story that you can relate that uh, helped people understand what direct direct action looks like? Because many of our listeners might not have um, seen it. Right. Well, uh, one that's pretty easy to access, I think, uh, through the internet is the the story of the march uh, to Selma from Birmingham that uh, Dr. King led during the civil rights movement. Uh, when was that? About 63, 64, 65, maybe 65. The, the thing that he needed to happen at that particular point in the civil rights movement was federal intervention. And Lyndon Johnson had no wish whatever to, to intervene in, this, in that situation in the Deep South. Uh, for all kinds of political reasons that were important for him. And he didn't want to get involved with that. And King knew that if uh, people marched from uh, Birmingham to Selma, across uh, across Birmingham, uh, across Alabama, it would be so dangerous and so filled with turbulence and uh, violence, uh, lives would be lost and so on, that, that if, if there were no federal intervention, that that would force Johnson to make a federal intervention in order to say, we're not just neutral in this, we actually believe in racial justice, which Lyndon Johnson did not want to do. He didn't want to break up the solid South, so-called, because that was something the Democratic Party nationally depended on, and it didn't want to alienate those folks. Um, So the stakes were huge for Lyndon Johnson, the stakes were huge for the movement, and there's, there's uh, there are wonderful confrontations in the Oval Office between the most powerful person, arguably, in the world, Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> and Dr. King, forcing him to do something that he didn't want to do. <laughs> and the reason why he could force LBJ, of all people, to do this horrible thing from LBJ's point of view was because he was leading a mass movement that was prepared to do nonviolent direct action. And it was that power that forced the strongest man in the world to yield. Mm. And LBJ yielded. Mm. That's, I think, the most historically um, glaring and surprising uh, example that I could offer from our American history. Thanks. So in terms of your work, the the process of persuasion, um, any examples from your career, either in the state planning office or the Department of Marine Resources? Certainly you were dealing with lots of different issues, but um, any particular one come to mind to say, hey, we we scored a victory here because we use this technique of kind of negotiation leading to a policy change? Yeah, well, some one of the um, longer term and bigger issues I worked on was to um, to sustain access to the working waterfront for fishing industries. And what was going on with that is that, you know, in the state constitution, you have to tax land at its highest and best use. And what that actually translates to is, is market value. So 
a fishing pier would be taxed as if it was a hotel or a restaurant or a, a large mansion owned by a celebrity. And the problem with this, of course, is that this was putting fishermen out of business. Um, and the other problem, too, was that um, a lot of fishermen were getting ready to retire and they could get very big bucks by selling their waterfront property and moving away, maybe to Florida or someplace they'd been hoping to move to. But the problem with that is that then it was uh, not available uh, as, as waterfront access for the fishing industry. So that was a really interesting issue, and it required changing the Constitution uh, because of that highest and best use clause. We actually had to change the Constitution of the state of Maine in order to, to try to address this problem. Um, but the thing that was great about it was there was really good recognition uh, among all different parties that this was a problem. It's just that nobody knew quite how to solve it. Um, and we'd gotten down to the wire. And basically, Maine has, you know, somewhere around 3,000 miles of coast, only 25 miles were left as working waterfront. So we were feeling that this was a critical uh, juncture, that something had to be done. And so that was a great example. And there was a wonderful uh, coalition building around that. So we had uh, fishermen, we had aquaculturists, we had uh, marine businesses, you know, uh, places that fix boats and, and have marinas. And uh, we had tourist industry people. And we just had a broad coalition of people who were saying, you know, wait a minute, we really need to do something here to change. And so um, that was a great uh, exercise in persuasion. Um, it took us seven years to make the change. Uh, and I, there, I won't go into all the technical reasons why that was. But, but basically, there was a lot of work to put uh, you know, fishermen and other stakeholders uh, in front of decision makers and have them tell their stories. And, um, and I think that uh, the Maine State Legislature, they understood it, they got it. And we were able to um, change the Constitution. We were able to change the tax structure uh, for fishing uh, operations. And we were also able to create a law that allows uh, fishermen to sell their development rights to their property. So if they do want to retire and their property on the water is their biggest asset, they can actually sell off those rights to a, um, a nonprofit who would agree to not develop them uh, into something other than a fish pier. So that was another piece of it. So we created the solutions um, and it took a lot of work and a lot of sort of diligence and focus to get that to happen, but we did it. And mm. it was really um I think a, a credit to all the people that, that worked on it. I was just one of the people that, that worked on it. But uh, so that that's an example that I would say absolutely persuasion was part of this. We needed to build the issue in people's eyes. We needed to persuade them that a change was needed. Uh, and then, of course, to change the Constitution, you have to pass legislation and then you have to pass a citizen referendum. So then we had a, a big job to uh, persuade the citizens to vote for this. And what actually happened was the first time we had the referendum, we actually lost. And the reason we lost was because the uh, framing of the referendum question made it sound like the fishermen were asking for special interest or a special rule just for them. And if you looked at the analysis of how the vote went, all the coastal counties voted for it and all the inland counties voted against it. So you knew that's exactly what had happened. So the second time around, we changed the wording and of the referendum question, and we 
worded it such that um, should fishing uh, enjoy the same rights that forestry and agriculture actually have to um, be taxed at uh, a rate based on what they do with the land, not on its highest and best use. And as soon as we switched it, we reframed it to a fairness question with agriculture and forestry. We actually won the second referendum by, I think it was 73%. I mean, it was a landslide. And so it was a really great lesson uh, on how you really have to pay attention uh, on all the details as you're trying to persuade people to come and support you. Um, and but we did we did succeed in the end on that. Great. Well, again, a reminder to listeners that they're tuned to talk of the towns this afternoon. You've just heard from Sue Inches, who is author of Advocating for the Environment, published by North Atlantic Books in 2021. We're also joined by George Lakey, uh, author most recently of Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice, published by Seven Stories Press in 2022. Um, so as as we think about um, this and, and your work, um, it seems like you've are both articulated the importance of vision, um, a vision that leads to strategies. And then uh, in, in both cases, whether by direct nonviolent action or uh, by the, the arts of persuasion, there's a long, long slog of working out those details and getting getting the thing right. So. Uh, George, start by talking about the importance of vision and strategy in any kind of um, in any of your work. I'm really glad you brought that up. That is one of the strong, strong things we have in common, uh, Sue and I. A very big emphasis on vision. And I think that uh, one of the ways that I'm self-critical about us in the United States is that that doesn't tend to be uh, our strength when it comes to to at least uh, on the part of of a lot of the protest kinds of movements that come along. We tend to be a bit deficient on the vision side. And it's one of the main things I think that we can learn from the work that Sue does is the importance of vision. The contrast that I discovered on that was most striking when I was working on my book, Viking Economics, which is about Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Iceland. Those countries le- leapt far, far ahead of the United States, uh, even though they started from a point 100 years ago uh, very much behind us in terms of individual uh, opportunity, in terms of equality, uh, well-being, we were ahead of the Nordic countries 100 years ago. They were small, they were homogeneous, they had some things that some people say they have going for them, but in fact they were behind, and therefore Norwegians and Swedes and and Danes were, were migrating to the United States, getting out of town, right? But what they did in the 1920s and 30s over there was they developed movements that that in turn developed vision that really made vision important, teamed up with economists. So you had leaders of the labor movements in those countries sitting down with the economists and figuring out what would an economy be like that really supported us, that dealt with economic equality so that we could have equality here instead of these wide, wide differences between the rich and the poor and so on. And they they worked out a vision, which they then in the 1920s and 30s took to the people and said, hey, do you want this? Do you want, for example, health care uh, basically free, available to all? Do you want university education for free? Do you want 
uh, security in your old age so that everyone, would you like to get rid of poverty? We've had poverty for thousands of years, but we don't need to have it because we figured out a vision for how we can go past the days of poverty. We can have well-being for everyone. And of course, people said, yes, yes, yes. And then the, the leaders that had brought that vision to folks said, okay, well then join this movement and it's it's a movement that will make that happen if enough people join. Enough people did join, and those countries made their big transition. That's what I write about in my book, Viking Economics. And it was, it was quite inspiring to me to learn that history. I mean, it was an accident, actually, in a way, because I had married into Norway. <laughs> And else I would not have studied the, studied the historical background of those countries. But once uh, I married in and decided, hey, I should get to know this place and learn this history, I thought, whoa, the difference between movements that develop a vision and advocate for them and movements that don't is an enormous difference. And we in America, I mean, we had a lot of visionary thinking when we started the Republic, you know, very long ago. Uh, we were incredible visionaries when we separated from Britain. But that that uh, day seemed to have passed. We can reclaim that. And that's one of the things that Sue and I have very much in common, the belief that we can reclaim the ability to envision what we want. And then we can, uh, then, of course, many people will join us because what we want uh, is the, the best possible world for everybody rather than just for a few. Hmm. It seems like the people who have captured the vision thing <laughs> are the, those who have um, most uh, um, kind of in play and want to maintain the status quo. And so they, they describe <laughs> a vision that is 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 saying, well, you don't want this. You don't <laughs> want people coming in to take your jobs. You know, they, they've they've captured that. So how do we how do we make that transition so that it's, it's the people? creating the vision, not those um, who have power and, and kind of the ability to, to, to create the, 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 uh, the media strategy. Um, Sue, what, what do you think about that? How do, how do we get to um, the people um, and talk about what they want um, for their future? Well, of course, people have much more power, than, much more power than they think they do. And um, I just read a really interesting book by a fellow named Rob Hopkins called What If? And um, what Rob is talking about is how he says, you know, with the problems that we're facing right now, you know, uh, climate and poverty, and we know what they all are, inequality and racism, whatever. He said, we need imagination right now more than at any other time ever before. And I think he's right about that. Um, people get so mired down in what the problem du jour is. And yet what we really need to do is say, no, wait a minute. What is it we really want? What do we really want and, and what does that look like? And we need to use our imaginations. And I think that, you know, every person, I believe, has the power to create vision within them. And we just haven't been exercising it enough. And so I think that's what we need to do. And one of the things that I do see going on that's very encouraging is that lots of little communities, towns and villages, they're creating their own visions of things that they want, you know, whether it's a solar farm or a community garden, or uh, I have another friend who's creating a summit on plastics and how they reduce their use of plastics in her town. I mean, I think those are where we need to go, where we actually have a network and we can create a vision and we can actually accomplish something. And it feels really good. 
And when, when, when people do that, then they want to do more. So I think it's really pretty basic that way. It's not about looking to some authority for a vision. That is basically giving our power away. It's instead about taking our power back and saying, well, what do we want around here? You know, what, what, what could we use in my town? Gee, maybe we really need a park, you know, that people could go and walk in nature. Well, let's figure out how we can create that. So to me, that's where it really has to start. And I'm really encouraged that so many people are working on projects of this type. George, what would you add to that in terms of, of examples where a vision has, has made a difference, perhaps here in the United States? Well, perhaps take it back to some of that um, that work in terms of, of direct nonviolent action. Um, uh, obviously, um, there was the immediacy of a particular action and a vision that uh, you might say, okay, that will lead to the confrontation with the leaders and so on. But there must have been something behind that. Dr. King, you know, articulated a vision. <laughs> he had a dream and he was able to talk about that dream people being equal and people being free. And that takes us back to our, 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 our own origins as a nation. So there's, there's some of that vision that needs to inspire us. A recent example of good visionary work, I think, was the uh, young people, some of whom were my students who organized the, sun, uh, the Sunrise Movement, uh, deciding that a vision was indeed necessary. And they uh, created something called the Green New Deal, which borrowed a lot from Bernie Sanders and others who did do some uh, vision, important visionary thinking. And the Green New Deal was a vision for the United States for how we could uh, shift ourselves from this enormous carbon de uh, dependency that we've got that is putting us and the rest of the world in a terrible jam and instead uh, could brighten our future and take away some of the anxiety that young people are now feeling so badly. And, and that vision was uh, introduced by those young people, by a sit-in in Pelosi's office <laughs> in the beginning of the congressional session. And uh, so they, they'd... Uh, found out from my, the classes I taught at Swarthmore that drama really matters if you want to get a vision out. Uh, but the thing was that they had a vision, and so they were creating their drama by sitting in in her office uh, to, to em emphasize, hey, there's this new vision. Well, the new vision uh, was immediately picked up by the media because of the drama of it. And it was put out in sufficient amount of detail so that the pollsters and uh, phoned around at, in order to get a, a poll, polling done on what do people think of the Green New Deal. And what they found was the initial response of Americans was a majority of people loved the sound of the Green New Deal and what they understood about it from those those early messages, including a majority, when they broke it down party-wise, a majority of Republicans loved the idea of a Green New Deal, as well as a majority of Democrats. And that was, to me, a recent example of how powerful, even on a national level, which is harder usually to do, just because national levels are so huge compared with local level. But nevertheless, that's an, a, a positive example of the role of vision giving, uh, give, giving inspiration for a lot of follow-through work, which then happened. Uh, thanks to the Green New Deal, and some of which got incorporated in, in the latest uh, huge Biden package that Congress passed uh, just some months ago. So it's an example of the power of visionary thinking. We need to escalate that power 
um, and become even bolder as the Nordics did. But I think we get some positive uh, encouragement from what those young people did in the Sunrise Movement. Mm. And and both of you in your books and your your lives really have emphasized the importance of community as one of the starting places. Um, and uh, Sue, your examples of uh, individual communities saying, um, this is our preferred future. This is what we would like to see. So rather than starting with problems, they're saying, this is what we'd like to see. We would like to see people with access um, to the out of doors. Oh, how do we do that? Well, we create a trail system that links the town and, and the park next door or whatever. So talk a little bit more if you could, Sue, and then George, about the importance of community in either of these approaches, this persuasion, um, the, the slow grinding of, uh, of uh, policy, or perhaps in direct action. But start with, Sue, more about this notion of community, if you would. Well, sure, because um, there's actually social science research that shows when people feel kind of isolated and alone, they can be feeling very overwhelmed and they will not take action. So it might be climate change or toxics or some issue uh, if they feel like they're alone, but if they um, are in community and it can just be small, it could be a small group of people, but if they have a community of support around them, then they feel emboldened to take action. It's amazing. I mean, this has been proven in, in social science research. So that's why it's really, really important. And there's a couple of ways to, to, to slice this. I mean, one, of course, is the actual community and what project can we do together uh, that would, would bring us the future we want. But also when it comes to um, policymaking, um, communities of support there are very important. And that's why um, coalitions uh, get built, is because none of us is going to go by ourselves and testify in front of a legislative committee if we don't really feel like we know what we're doing. And it's a little intimidating for most people anyway. And, you know, what do I say? And But if you have a community of people that's going to go do this together, it's a whole different story. And then, you know, in a situation like that, um, there's often a little training session and here are some talking points and all kinds of support comes up so that ordinary people can actually go in and talk to decision makers and, you know, have a real impact. Um, and we've, I've, we just got through doing this for um, a piece of legislation called the Pine Tree Amendment. And what that would do is it would add um, the right to clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment to Maine's constitution. Well, we had a beautiful array of, I think, about 55 people who testified on the issue. And it was a broad range of people from business people to students to um, educators, uh, environmentalists, um, you know, just a broad range of people saying, you know, I care about this issue and here's why. And so, but but we needed that sense of community an organization to be able to go in and make our voices heard. So really, really important to do that. And in my book, actually, I talk about this because I know a lot of people find the whole, just the word advocacy is sort of intimidating, right? And um, the fact is, it's really about uh, creating relationships with decision makers who are human beings, by the way, and, um, and, and bringing to them uh, the power of your heart. So if the power of, of your heart is saying, I really care about the environment, and I think that environmental rights are going to protect my children and grandchildren, if they have the right to clean air and clean water, that's going to really help their future, and I care about that, that's really all it is. Um, but it takes a community of support 
to bring people out to come and say those things in those places where decisions are getting made. So, you know, kind of a couple of different ways of looking at community. And one is, you know, in your own town, your village, whatever your neighborhood. And then the other is a community of support for trying to take some action on something. Mm. And both are really critical to social change. George, in your um, life and work, uh, you you cite many examples where um, a community has supported you in your work. Um, and I think of your connections with uh, friends, with Quakers, um, as part of that. Um, uh, talk a little bit about that support when you're you're kind of out on a limb <laughs> and and uh, you're facing a crisis, and how important that's that community support is um, to uh, to an activist, for instance, like yourself. I think the limb that I got farthest out on in my entire life was when during the Vietnam War, and I was very, very involved in the struggle against that war, um, a group of us came up with a, a concept of for direct action of sailing a sailing ship from uh, Hong Kong to Vietnam with medical supplies for the civilians who were suffering under the U.S. Uh, war against the uh, Vietnamese. And um, the, that was an incredible war. You know, that, that but Putin, what Putin is doing to Ukraine isn't anything like as bad as what the United States did to Vietnam. And uh, it, it was just it was just grotesque. It's very hard to describe for people who haven't been there. But I had been there in Vietnam and, and uh, seen uh, seen sites and uh, as part of this work of setting up this this voyage. But the thing was that I felt uh, led to by, by spirit, actually, by by uh, by God's spirit to um, volunteer for the voyage to Vietnam, even though. Uh, we would need to go through the Seventh Fleet to get there. <laughs> the United States Seventh Fleet. We would encounter Vietnamese, South Vietnamese government gunboats. Uh, so there'd be plenty of military uh, might that we would be confronting, and it was by no means clear that I would return alive. Uh, and so uh, that was. I, that's why I say it was farthest out on a limb. And and I went to my Quaker meeting, you know, and I said, uh, so I feel. You know, as an individual led to volunteer to join the crew, there were a lot of people volunteering at the time, and they certainly didn't need to take me. Um, but I, but uh, I, I need guidance because this is I'm a dad. You know, I'm a dad. I have a family. Uh, is this okay to do? And so a committee of Quakers sat with me and prayed with me and supported me to try to figure this out about whether it was just some kind of, you know, ego aggrandizing kind of move on my part. I'm a drama queen, right? So oh yeah, George gets to do drama, or is this is this the real thing? And their conclusion was that yes is the real thing. And George, if you don't come back alive, uh, we will take care of your family. So it's a very deep um, experience, the deepest experience I've had in my own life, although I've taken many risks at many points in my life, that was the deepest one where, and it shows the power of community uh, assisting, assisting what needed to happen to really happen. Mm. Well, listeners, we're tuned to talk of the towns, talking about advocacy and Nonviolent direct action with our guests, George Lakey and Sue Inches. Um, we're at a particular point in history, I suppose, um, 100 years from now, from now, the historians will look back and they'll describe it all to us. They'll, they'll help us make sense of it. It's pretty hard to make sense of what's happening right now. But do you have any particular 
insights from your um, lives and careers and your work to say how we got here and how we get out of where we are now. Um, uh, George, would you like to start? And anything that, that, any hope that you can give us based on your life? Well, this is this is a this is a sensitive matter because it was it leads to the biggest professional mistake I've made in my life, <laughs> my profession being sociology, uh, both teaching and research, because I was studying the polarization, the the political polarization that is so so extreme in our country and is getting more extreme. And my prediction is it will become even more extreme than this. Uh, and I was uh, I was studying it uh, a dozen years ago because sociologists pay attention to that kind of thing. So I was really trying to come to grips with it a dozen years ago, and I was feeling worried about it because it had it, there's such grim and painful dimension to polarization. And at the same time, I was researching those Nordics, though, that I referred to earlier, the Norwegians, Danes, Swedes, and I learned that they made their big leap forward from the mess countries that they had had been to the countries that are far ahead of us now in, in terms of achievement of, of progressive values. And they made their big leap forward in the 1920s and 30s, which happened to be the period of greatest polarization in modern history for them. And I thought, wait a minute, the way I have it wired in my head is polarization makes it harder to make major change. But in their experience, they made their biggest change in, in entire history at the time of the greatest polarization. How can that be? And that forced to me to take a new look at polarization, to look at the 1930s in the United States, which was the period of tremendous polarization in our half, first half century, tremendous Nazi movement growing like crazy, communist glory period of the Communist Party and so on. And it was the period of greatest progress that we made in, in the first half of the 20th century. And then the second half of the 20th century, the 60s, oh my gosh, the Nazis were coming back, Ku Klux Klan bombing churches, tremendous stuff going on in the right, a lot of violence. And on the left, uh, also tremendous upsurge of activity. And in the 60s, we could say, 60s, which overlapped into the 70s, it was the period of greatest progress that we made in the second half of the 20th century. So instead of polarization being this grim, horrible thing, and I'm not saying it, it isn't painful, it is, but we also have to see out of pain can come possibility. And that's what I now see polarization as. I now see polarization as a process which is, yes, painful and also increases possibility for good change. And mm -hmm. so uh, just like we wouldn't want to say women should not get pregnant because then they might actually give birth and giving birth is painful and therefore let's give that up. So also I would say, look, let's acknowledge the pain. I mean, I cry about it. It hurts my heart. It hurts to go through polarization, but if that's what it takes to make the big changes that we now need to make, then let's figure out how the people who did make the big changes for in the United States in the 30s and 60s, how they went about doing it, because we need to channel them now that we're polarized again and take advantage of this opportunity and really go for it, because do we ever need change at this time? One of the ways at which um, you are both kind of excited by um, the possibility is the engagement of young people. 
um, each of you have have figured out ways to to reach into that population and to be inspired by them, but also to teach them. Um, Sue, to talk a little bit about your kind of teaching experience, your your connection with young people, and what might give you hope in that work. Well, I think a lot of young people realize that they are the future. And so they're taking pretty seriously some of the things that we're facing, um, you know, polarization, of course, and climate and toxics and uh, war and many things. And so it is inspiring to work with young people who actually know that this is about their future. And one of the things that I love to teach, of course, is that uh, the best way out of despair is through taking action. And so to teach uh, younger people how to take action. Um, any kind of, many different kinds of action, but to give them that sort of um, uh, menu of things that they can actually do uh, is really, really helpful. And I, in fact, I teach some college classes and uh, very often I get uh, environmental science majors in my classes because my, my class is called Advocating for the Environment. And what they say to me is, you know, we're pretty depressed. We've, we've learned the science and it isn't good. And, um, but we don't know what to do about it. And I said, you're in the right classroom. I said, that's entirely what we're going to be working on here is what can we do about that? And you can be you can play a, an important part in that. So um, I think it's it is it is inspiring to me. And there's some absolutely wonderfully intelligent and insightful uh, young people out there doing this work. Um, and I should even call out um, Maine Youth Action and Maine Youth for Climate Justice, because the, the, these are a group of um, high school students who are organized. Um, they lobby. They um, um, they get you know they build coalitions of support. Uh, they have their legislative agenda, and it's really quite incredible. Um, but they understand that their voices count. That's the main thing, and they're going to go in there and share what really matters to them with decision makers. And they've been Before very. Before I, I, the, we're going to run out of time, and I don't want to do that without giving you, Sue, a chance to talk a little bit about um, Georgia's um, work here in Maine in the next uh, month or so. We're recording this um, at the uh, beginning of April. Our program will be aired um, uh, middle April, but George will be here in May. Uh, describe, this, describe some of that so listeners might be able to take advantage of some of George's appearances. Sue? Yeah, we're really lucky that George is going to be with us in person in May. Um, he's on a book tour now for his uh, newest book, his memoir called Dancing with History. And he's going to be in May, uh, in May in Maine from May 3rd to May 7th. And what we have scheduled is a number of different events, quite a few of which are in your listening area. As a matter of fact, we have uh, Bar Harbor, we have Orono, um, we have uh, Brunswick. Um, and so there's a whole list of events. Many, many, if not most of these are open to the public. And to find out more about them, you can actually go to my Facebook page. So Sue Inch's Facebook page. Um, I posted the entire itinerary there so people can find out the dates and times and where these are going to happen. But it's going to be a lot of fun. George and I are going to drive around and we're going to chat and we're going to meet people. And it's going to be a really, I think, upbeat and fun uh, tour to present uh, his new book. So great, great, and we'll we'll also try to get those up on our WERU um, website as well. Um, so, last question to both of you. Um, we've only got a couple more minutes, so it'll have to be brief. But um, kind of, what gives you hope, um, uh, George? What what uh, kind of provides you the 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 energy to to keep at it? 
part of it is that I've managed to do it so, for such a long time already. <laughs> so I have momentum going for me. Another thing is so many people that I know, and the book tour has been wonderful for rekindling a lot of those relationships, uh, are still in the fight. They're still working. They're still trying to figure out uh, good, good moves. And the other thing is that we have such a wonderful history. Such a wonderful history of of smart, uh, really ingenious, creative, and courageous people behind us. Civil rights movement, but so many movements along the way. And that's what gives me also a lot of hope. We've done it before. We can do it again. Thank you, George. Uh, Sue, very briefly, what gives you hope? Well, for one thing, there is a lot of really, really good work going on. So... One of the things I do is I write a monthly newsletter, and what I feature in that newsletter is basically progress on the environment. And what I dig out and find is a lot of stories that don't get any media attention to speak of, but they're really important and really big. I mean, people are doing incredible things. I'll give you one quick example is um, a new system uh, called the Climate Trace System, and using satellite technology, we're actually able to now measure and monitor every pollution source around the world. Well, what does that mean? That means there's no place to hide. That means that we can actually measure the results of climate policy. Is what we're doing working or not working? What, you know? So um, I could go on and on about this, but there's really so much good work going on. And the final thing too, for me, is a sense of faith. I think that um, people are good in their hearts and they want a good future. And so we just need to continue to work together to bring that about. Well, thank you both. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnane House Island music recording. Thanks again to our guests here this afternoon as we talked about advocacy and nonviolent direct action. George Lakey, author of Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice with Seven Stories Press in 2022. And Sue Inches here in Maine, author of Advocating for the Environment by North Atlantic Books, published in 2021. Thanks to Andy Brown and Joe Mann for helping to engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns, and this is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>